All right. Bring it together. Morning. Good morning. Good morning. If you're having Pope problems, I feel bad for you, son. I got 95 theses, but transubstantiation ain't one. Um, so uh, before we get started on that, just wanted to uh, give a, um, a maybe a podcast shout out uh, if they're listening to Matthew and Amy Winner uh, had uh, the and Jonah Winner had uh, welcomed the new member of their family last night. It's Julia Lynn Winner. Is that that's correct, right? And everybody's doing well, so yeah, that's, uh, that's exciting. Um, always extremely thankful for that family and uh, the role that they play. Um, at New Hope, we're extremely blessed to have them. So, uh, welcome Julia into the family. Um, so, I have—if I was ever in a car accident, um, and for some reason, like my face was like mangled by like an engine or something—good place to begin a sermon, right? Um, and they couldn't identify like my face, and you know something was wrong. One way that if you ever like, you know, oh gosh, I got to find out if this, you know horrible body is Joe, one way you could do that is by looking at my, uh, my left hand. Um, when I was somewhere in the early 90s, I suppose, somewhere around 1991 or something like that, I was in the kitchen and I was um, trying to open up a can of ravioli, uh, like a Chef Boyardee can of ravioli, and we had this like old, I guess, rickety like uh, can opener, um, and I sliced my hand, my finger on it. So I actually have a scar that runs down the top of my finger, uh, right there on my ring finger, um, and uh, it, it, I'm running around the house, like, screaming. My, I remember my dad was yelling at me, and I'm like, my hand's bloody, and I probably should have gone to the hospital, but it's fine. Um, no, it's, it's good. <laughs> it's fine. No big deal. But it's one of the only scars that I, like, I deal with on a regular basis um, that uh, I look at. I look at it every day. I, I, can't, I, I can't play the guitar, for instance, without thinking of it. It actually um, it hurts probably that finger more than any other you know, finger to play the guitar because it's something every time I play the guitar, I think about, well, I've got that scar there, um, and it actually starts you know, aggravating after a while. Um, but it's, it's, it got me thinking about scars. And what we're going to talk about today um, is something that you will see as an American Protestant, uh, if you would categorize yourself by that, um, you're going to see the scars of the struggle that we're talking about today in there. And I say the word scar because there are times when the Reformation, when Luther and, and Calvin and, and that situation that happened in Europe 500 years ago. Um, there is times when certain parts of the evangelical community make it seem like that was a shining beacon of hope. And I definitely want to talk about that. I definitely want to encourage that. But also, I think as Christians, as maybe, you know, historians, um, you want to look back at that and you want to say, you know, let's not be so quick to point fingers at the good guys and the bad guys at this situation. Um, but I just want us to go into it a little bit of perspective. But I, what, what I do want us to do is kind of do business with our scars a little bit. So, the Reformation. Oh, all right. In 1520, King Francis I, 
of France, invites King Henry VIII of England to a royal tournament to discuss matters of state. The hope, thank you, James, the hope was that they could form an alliance against their powerful enemy, the Holy Roman Emperor, Charles V. Everything about the occasion spoke of royalty. The kings and their followers and their horses. Uh, everything was decked out in gold and silver thread. The silk and gold um, was draped throughout the tents to shield them from the sun. And the event was dubbed the Field of the Cloth of Gold. But the more Francis tried to impress Henry with his elaborate wealth, the more it, it fed into that kind of royal rivalry. And Francis ended up offending Henry VIII by outspending him for the occasion, and the alliance didn't work out. In response, Henry VIII met with Charles V and was won over by the emperor's attempts at frugality. You know, he played it up. Francis I and Charles V entered into a century of, um, entered into this, what would become a century of warfare, and Henry kind of waited to see who was left standing. Charles V had inherited this sprawling multinational empire, but was threatened by the Ottoman Turks to the east, who were gaining strength. The Turks had taken Constantinople in 1453. They consolidated their rule. They created this well-trained military, and then in 1529 were threatening the lucrative sea trade that had existed in the Mediterranean, and war erupts in Europe. Huge portion of the European population suffer uh, in this warfare. The new gun technology of the day led to more disabilities, um, but also that led to inflation, and it led to ruined harvest. Disease and poverty exploded. One French writer puts it like this. He says, thousands of poor people, subdued like skeletons, the majority leaning on crutches and dragging themselves along as best they could for a piece of bread. But the kings didn't stop. The Habsburg-Valois Wars went on for about 25 years until Francis and Charles finally negotiated a peace treaty in 1544. Now, during the wars, some peculiar alliances were created. Francis sought help from the Turks against Charles, and both Francis and Charles sought help from a third party, a party who presently offered criticism towards the Church of the Day. Both, both Catholic kings sought help from this group against the other. But then after the treaty, the Catholic Church, or the Holy Roman Empire, was more of a unified front. And they saw the problems with anyone who advocated any sort of religious diversity. So Charles and Francis actually agreed to focus their attention on defeating Muslims and Lutherans. Anyone who threatened the Christian world. Now, the word Catholic means universal. But those that sought to reform the church used the term to mean the traditional church. Uh, criticism against the Catholic church had existed since the Middle Ages. Had the church grown too powerful? Um, had the church grown too wealthy? Uh, was obedience to the Pope necessary for salvation? Tradition had it, that the path of salvation lay in being a part of the church. 
and grace was offered to Christians through the seven sacraments. Back in 1215, the Fourth Lateran, uh, Lateran Council had declared that there was no salvation outside of the church. There was this emphasized need for the priest or a father confessor to hear confession and offer absolution. In time, however, more and more, folks were attempting to see God directly, seek God directly through prayer. Some were called, some of these folks were called the brethren of common life. And they attempted to devout themselves to direct personal relationship with Christ, called uh, Devotio Moderna. Thomas Akempis' imitation of Christ comes out of this movement. Uh, Erasmus, who was probably the illegitimate son of a supposedly celibate priest, was educated out of this movement. Uh, Erasmus, for instance, he learned Greek and insisted that the starting point for education be the study of language specifically Latin, Greek, and Hebrew. He rejected the Vulgate, uh, the Latin translation of the Bible, which was, officially ex- which was the officially accepted version of Scripture. He said, I would that even the lowliest women read the Gospels and the Pauline epistles, and I would that they were translated into all languages. He also wrote a satire which told a story of the Pope being unable to enter heaven. He wrote the Praise of Folly, which pokes fun at just about everything religious of the day, including himself. He wasn't advocating separation from the church, but later it would be said that he laid the egg that Luther hatched. So that brings us to Martin Luther. Martin Luther was born in 1483, the son of an upwardly mobile family in Germany. His father owned a successful mine and desired that his son would become a lawyer and contribute to the family fortune. One day, however, during a terrible thunderstorm, Martin gets hit by a bolt of lightning. And while he's on the ground, he cries out, Help me, I will be, and I will become a monk, he cries out to St. Anne. He survives, and he wants to fulfill his vow, much to his father's disapproval. Um, and he becomes a priest, and he becomes a, pre- uh, a monk, he becomes a priest, and he becomes a doctor of theology. Uh, but the whole time, he's plagued. He's plagued by his own depravity. He just couldn't ever get to the point where he felt that he was worthy of God's salvation. Uh, Luther finally finds peace in Scripture verses, like we see in Romans 1. For, this is Paul, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith, to the Jew first and also the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed through faith for faith, as it is written, the one who is righteous will live by faith. Or Galatians 2, um, starting in verse 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is justified not by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And we have come to believe in Christ Jesus so that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by doing the works of the law because no one will be justified by the works of the law. But if in our effort to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. But if I build up again the very things that I once tore down, then I demonstrate that I am a transgressor. For though the law, uh, through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith to the Son of God, in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify 
the grace of God. For if justification through the law, then Christ died for nothing. See, Luther realized that salvation comes through God's grace and God's mercy. It was faith, not rituals, that save souls. It was Christ that offers salvation. Now, in the Middle Ages, the church had developed a process for forgiving people of their sins. Uh, The process included confession, penance, and absolution. But church leaders would demand Christians undergo certain works like prayers, fasting, pilgrimages, so that they could be forgiven. Problem was, sometimes folks died before completing the process. These folks were placed in purgatory, where they would suffer for their sins before entering heaven. By the late middle medieval age, people came to believe that it would be essentially impossible for anyone to have done full penance for their sins before they died. So, they get an idea on how to strengthen penance. Penance. The Pope claims that he has a treasury of merit, which is the, like an infinite supply of good works that had been done by the saints, which he could draw from to remit sins. So the idea was, if you, had a certain, if you did a certain pious act, like, say, contributing money to a worthy cause, um, we can take care of not only your sins, but also the sins of your loved ones who happen to be in purgatory right now. A Dominican friar named Johann Tetzel puts it like this, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. Luther is furious, and he writes a series of statements calling out the church for the selling of indulgences. Tradition has it that on October 31st, 1517, in Saxony, Germany, Martin Luther nails the 95 theses to the door of the church at Wittenberg. He may have actually just sent them to the bishop. But he may have, and he also may have just been initially interested in kind of starting a conversation, not necessarily a revolution. But his statements are soon all over Germany through the technological advancement of the day, which was the printing press. Um, Yeah, the Gutenberg printing press, which allows a quarter million copies of Luther's words to go in circulation. Not, they not only inflamed those who were already feeling resentment within the church, they also inflamed Germans who had been angry that all this German money was flowing into Italy to build St. Peter's Church in Rome. Luther leaves the monastery, he marries a former nun, and begins to work for the church universal by composing transformative hymns uh, and translating the Bible into German. He and the subsequent Protestant reformers advocated principles like the like the priesthood of all believers. Um, Church leaders could be ministers, they could be pastors, they could teach, they could preach, they could guide Christians, they could be shepherds, um, but they're not going to affect salvation. They're not going to stand in between you and God. Like, I'm probably not going to come up when you're talking to God. (laughs) You know, I really don't need... Conversely, he may bring you up to me, you know, but what I'm saying is that There's no mediator other than Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only mediator that you need between you and God. You don't need any other sort of um, sacrificial or any kind of um, ritual system. Uh, The church doesn't hold the keys there. Uh, They weren't mediators. The only one who stands between you and God is Jesus Christ. As such, they also challenged how the church would administer the sacraments. Specifically, um, Most of them acknowledged two sacraments, baptism and the Eucharist, but even communion was changed. Catholics had taught that the bread and the wine actually become Christ's flesh, 
and blood um, actually become Christ's flesh and blood, and that are only, and only ordained priests could actually make this happen. This was called transubstantiation. As the movement grows momentum, so does the church's frustration. In 1519, during a debate, Luther makes a public denial of the authority of the Pope. In 1521, he's called before, uh, to appear before Charles V at the Imperial Diet of Worms. Interestingly enough, it was originally the Diet of Tuna Casserole, but he, he changed it. He preferred worms to tuna casserole. Just interesting little footnote. Think of the strength. <laughs> Think of the strength that this demanded. He didn't have 500 years of Protestant history to look back on and say, well, Gladwell did that. He had a thousand years of we've never done it that way before. And the Bible. It must have taken his enormous strength. He makes this historic statement. Since then, your serene majesty and that your lordship seek a simple answer, I will give it in this manner, neither horn nor tooth. Unless I am convinced by the testimony of Scripture or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or the councils alone, since it is well known that they have oft erred and contradicted themselves, I am bound by the Scriptures. And I am quoted, and my conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and I will not retract anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. Luther is allowed to leave and he seeks the help of the powerful Frederick the Wise of Saxony. Frederick, like other German princes, hopes that Protestantism is, um, is, is going to help to weaken the authority of the Holy Roman Emperor and kind of offers Luther this help and through hope, the hope that there was going to be opportunities more for, for the princes. In 1524, a peasants' war breaks out and that uses Luther's Reformation as kind of fuel to the fire. This is where the story takes a bit of a muddy turn. Luther doesn't side with the peasants. Instead, he tells them that he's an advocate of religious reform, not social revolution, and he reprimands the peasants. He writes a treatise called um, Against the Robbing and Murdering Hordes of Peasants. He tells them that the Bible speaks out against defying legitimate government, encourages those in power to smite, slay, and stab rebellious peasants. More than 100,000 people are killed. And Luther is seen by a hero by many of the powerful and the German princes. Charles V stumbles his way through the next few decades. But by the 1550s, Lutheranism had affected about half of the empire's population. In 1555, a compromise was reached in the Peace of Augsburg. And the Lutheran Church is acknowledged as a legitimate alternative to Catholicism in Germany. The peace didn't last. And the action moves to different parts of Europe. Zwingli and, and Calvin have adventures in Switzerland, and that deserves kind of its own attention. Uh, one particularly interesting situation that I think we'll get into more next week in the special bonus sermon um, is what happened in England. Uh, many of you know the, the story of Henry VIII and the six wives. Um, he's married to Catherine of Aragon, his, his uh, brother's widow, um, who has not produced a male heir. And I said, as soon as I mention Henry VIII, I'm about done. So, anyway, 
Um, anyway, married to Catherine of Aragon, who hasn't produced a male heir, um, and he seeks a divorce, a divorce that the church isn't interested in offering quickly. Uh, so he ends up distancing himself from the Catholic Church. Uh, and what happens is that they create a Church of England, uh, making the Archbishop of Canterbury the highest uh, church office in the land. And then Henry VIII's wives, which, you know, if you remember by the uh, divorced, beheaded, died, divorced, beheaded, survived, um, that back and forth, you can play everything that we just talked about, all of that politics, all of that history, all of that um, theological conversation, theological debate ends up playing out in Henry VIII's bedroom. And what ends up happening is that England, specifically, is launched into a century or more of civil war all over this, and Catholics kill Protestants, and Protestants kill Catholics, and it becomes real bloody, real fast. So, a couple of observations in closing. Number one, no apologies for content. I think that um, one of the regrets that I have um, in the early years of my faith was not learning about history not learning about the history of the church. Um, I went for years thinking like, yeah, Jesus died, and then the apostles started some, you know, the church, and there's all that Acts stuff, and then the Catholic Church starts, and then somewhere around 1500, that's when Luther starts the Protestant Reformation, and then blah, 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 we get America. You know? It's like I, I, I shortchange history, um, and then one of the reasons, one of the things that made me want to... Um, be a history major in, in college, was that I wanted that perspective. I, I wanted to launch a ministry, when it, kind of the ministry that I would offer to other people, um, the launching pad of that. I, I wanted to be historical perspective, and I had a real passion for helping people see that, that God was involved, but that's not simple, and we have to look for it, and we have to dig, and we have to do the work of history. If you're not interested in history, I, I get it. I understand that it can be really boring at times, um, but it can also be something that'll offer, uh, it, it can be something that offers a lot of depression, and you read it, and you're gosh, gosh, I just can't. We just keep screwing up. We keep screwing up, but also you see in these times throughout the entirety of church history how often God speaks, how often God um, is in places that you never realized he was in before. So give it a chance. And when you're doing that, as I said before, be real careful about naming good guys and bad guys. We're all bad guys, in a way. We're all radically corrupted by our own sin, and you will see that. And be very careful about saying that, wow, can't believe they made that mistake then. <laughs> Man, what is it? What is it 100 years, 200 years, 50 years that the, the church in the future is going to look back and say in 2015, wow, how did they not see that? What's it going to be? Do not be so quick as... Gandalf said to Frodo, do not be so quick to deal out death and judgment. And lastly, something that Jason said last week that, that reminded me of this. Um, last year, our house church uh, did a, a series with uh, Andy Stanley, and he tells this really powerful story. He says, I was in the basement some, one day, 
and I was working on my computer with a friend. And all of a sudden, I hear what sounds like a china cabinet being hit by another china cabinet. And I rush upstairs. Actually, that was my bed. I added that. I rush upstairs, and I see my daughter in the kitchen with the china cabinet having completely fallen over in the kitchen, glasses everywhere on the, on the floor, and I, my daughter's legs are dripping with blood. And she's standing there, and she has this horrified look on her face. And he said, I walked in, and she says, help me. And he says, you know what I said to her? You got yourself into this mess. You can get yourself out. I'm going back downstairs. I've got to, I got to save some of the computer. No. He said, I walked in, and I, I said, it'll be okay. And piece by piece, I started moving out big pieces out of the way. And I started you know, maybe sweeping out a path of the broken glass and the dangerous items. And then I went over to the, had her put on, get, jump up on the countertop, and I got her on my back, and we walked out, and I went, and I made sure that she was okay, and then we both put on adequate footwear, and we cleaned up the mess. That's, of course, that's what I did. That's what I did. I'm a father. The problem is that some of us think that's what God's like that we get in this mess that we've created for ourselves and that God looks at us and says, you got yourself into this, you can get yourself out. God wants to clear off the big pieces. He wants to clear a path. He wants to put us on his back. And he wants us to carry us out, but he wants to do it with us. He's not distant and removed. He's an intimate life partner. Um... That's it. Let me pray. Father, you have given us a robust and mature history filled with blood and tears and danger and war and conflict and hatred, but also with love and with joy and with courage and virtues, and grace, and peace. Help us to see that you are interested in helping us put this mess back together. That even as we look through the past and we try to see the dangers and to try to see the, the messes that we've created, help us to know that you are not a faraway bystander. You are not somebody that's standing up on the side saying, gosh, you guys got to put that back together. Good luck with that. You are saying, I want to be intimately involved. I want to tabernacle with you. I want to be um, moving inside of you. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. You are our hope. You are our strength. You are our mighty fortress. In the most holy name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. Would you stand? stand.